Who the bloody hell's that? Morning, Ange. Oh, Anthony. How are we? I'm really well. How are you? <laughs> Come on in. I will do. Thank you. Did that sound staged? Just a little. No, it's fine. fine. Yeah. I'm going to embrace the whole lounge pant thing next time. I'm going to put my University of New Hampshire lounge pants on. You should indeed. You're listening to the Corona Diaries, a sometimes random and often irreverent attempt to understand the psyche of singer Steve Hogarth. Hello and welcome to uh, chapter eight of the Corona Diaries. Uh, I'm not going to do what I did last week and say I can't believe we made it to eight. I'm I'm happy with the fact that we actually we might we might get to ten. So uh, we'll we'll keep going. Um, um, the legend that is Mr. Steve Hogarth is looking very chilled and relaxed behind his rug. How are you, H? I'm very well. I'm 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 good. Thank you. Yeah, I'm into it. I'm into it. My, it's it's funny because you were slightly grumpy last week, um, but obviously you know everything everything turned out fine in the end. I'm slightly out of step this week. Um, oh dear. The the batteries went down in my um, in my electric toothbrush this morning, and and for want of a better term, I, I had to finish myself off by hand. So it's kind of thrown thrown my morning. Yeah, no, that's that's rotten. Yeah, that's, so uh, that's a first world problem, but it, it's rotten. Yeah, yeah, so it's rotten. But I'm, but I'm going to try and power through. I'm going to take your example from last week, and I'm going to. I'm going to power through. Did you finish yourself off by hand with the electric toothbrush, or did you put it, discard it, and and pick up a, a proper manual? Hey, I, I went proper manual. I didn't. Ah, I, right. I didn't do yeah. the thing of trying. Well, the heads on the electric ones. If you're gonna if you're gonna do the old manual thing, don't really work. Do they? Because they're a bit small. So I no, I, I, I no, abandoned and, and went for a, a normal one. But it was all. It threw it. It threw threw the morning for me. To be honest, but. Oh, yeah. But we'll yeah. you know. We'll deal with it, but you're right. First, you're going to get over that, aren't you? Yeah, I'll, 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 I just sense that with you know, time heals all wounds. Yes, and, yes, know. and it's been it's it's been a couple Little of hours, fun. so I reckon we're yeah. We're, we're, Give it six months; it'll be like it never happened. Yes, yes. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll make a note for six months' time to mention it. And see how I'm feeling about it. Right. So, chapter eight. Um, I thought we're going to have to start. We're going to have to start. Well, first thing, actually, I've been texted by a guy called Dave Marshall, who's texted mm-hmm. me to say that his bucket list, that he doesn't have a bucket list, but he now does, because you singing his name on the Croomcast is now something he's ticked off the bucket list he doesn't have. Oh, the Dave Marshall. The, Not just any old Dave Marshall. Well, he's the Dave Marshall in my life because he's the only one I know. Um, yeah, well, he's he's now the Dave Marshall in my life because I've I've sung sung him in the croon cast. Yes, so he he contacted me and he was he was uh, I think he was quite touched by it all. So oh. I thought I'd thought I'd mention that. Um, this is the this is the loveliness of of what we've got going on. It's isn't it? it is it's a beautiful it's thing. Just, it's a beautiful there's, there's thing. loveliness abounding. Yes, which is cool. Yes, a lot of warmth. Um, so that was nice for Dave to get in touch. Um, I need remind me I need to talk to you because somebody called Andy's got in touch because he's starting to produce unofficial Corona Diaries merch. So we perhaps may need to. Put, you know, yes, we might need to talk about injunctions, or, or even just decide that we're happy for Andy to do it. So remind me to talk to you about that off. Uh, so, oh, Andy, we're coming for you. Um, so yeah, uh, we're gonna we're gonna have to start producing merch yeah, then yeah, before all, this before this bugger 
pulls the rug from yes, under us. Yes, yes. I don't think he's doing I rugs. Say. Um, <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of work in this rug. <laughs> yes, yes. Andy doesn't strike me as somebody who's into into that level of detail. Uh, I'm doing Andy a disservice. Sorry, Andy. Um, but yes, we'll talk about merch and Andy at some point. Um, I need to come back to one thing you mentioned last week. You said to me, don't forget to ask me about the Drug Enforcement Agency in New York. Ah, uh, yes. And I got it. Yes. It's the only thing I wrote down from last week. So, yeah. Do you, do you want to say yeah, that? I, yeah, I was telling you about Texas Tim, the tour manager, who, who we had to get in America because the tour manager we took to America was taken off the, the 747 in, in a wheelchair. And I never saw him again. <laughs> I think he lived through it. He was called Ralph. <laughs> and he used to talk like that. All right, that's all right. And he used to drive at 120 miles an hour with you in the back of the car frightened out of your skin uh he was quite a character um but anyway he was taken off the, the 747 in a in a wheelchair and and we i think a&m in hollywood hired us this this guy called tim who wore a stetson you know like a, a proper texas person and uh, i'd never seen anyone who wore a stetson before you know seriously not like not for fun and fancy dress but actually wore a stetson um and it took me a while to get used to that but tim was very very smooth and um as i said in the last podcast he arranged for us all to get on the plane first even though we were only flying economy uh and you could see all these suited booted uh business types sitting in the um in in the departure lounge, looking at us up and down, as to say, "Who are the bloody hell of this lot? Um, and why are they getting on the plane first? Anyway, we did, and we flew to New York from LA. So my first experience of being in America was was to fly straight to LA and be picked up uh, in at, at the airport by by Colin's girlfriend Tony and her yellow Buick which was amazing and surreal in itself. And then having played a few of two, two shows or something in, in Los Angeles, we then flew to New York with this, uh, this, this tour manager and a Stetson. And when we got, when we got um, down, we, you know, like you do, you do immigration and all of that, and you go through and you wait for your bags on the carousel. And while I was waiting for my bag on the carousel, uh, Tim came over, and I'm not sure I can do the accent because it's a Texas accent, but he came over and just said, uh, now uh, when you go through to um, arrivals, there's going to be two of my buddies waiting uh, for you. Uh, we were all in Vietnam together. Um, and I went, oh, right, right. And he said, and they'll make sure everything runs smoothly. So, okay. So I don't know what happened to the rest of the band. I got separated from the rest of the band, and I think I I, either, I, I must have got through first uh, before anybody. And I, get, I, I come through um, the barriers into arrivals in JFK, and there's these two guys standing there, and they're they're like Starsky and Hutch, and they're, they're like in a little uh, in a little black leather bomber jacket and the jeans and the and the sunglasses, and and uh, it was I can't remember their names, but they had really American names like Elmer and Bud or something like. Right. Hi, I'm Elmer. This is Bud. We're friends. Of, we're friends of Tim, and any friend of Tim's is a friend of ours. 
Uh, I go, oh, right. So, come on. And uh, they took me out of, uh, into the sort of cold New York air. Um, and there was this massive queue of people uh, waiting for taxis. And they walked straight to the front of the queue with me and they flashed their badges. They were both, they were both um, plain clothes police. So they flashed their badges and they just moved everybody out of the way and they put me in the back of this yellow cab. And then they got in either side of me. So the next thing, I'm, I'm rattling along in the back of this yellow cab with these two guys. Um, and uh, I got going to New York. And, and when, you, when you go to, to Manhattan from uh, JFK, you go down a tunnel at some point. And then you come up out of this tunnel and it was dark. And I came up out of this tunnel and as I came up out of this tunnel, I saw the Manhattan skyline all lit up. Um, and, you know, I had that moment that everyone has when they go to New York. They're kind of, oh, my God, it's it's real. Um, because you're so familiar with it, because you've seen it so many times on TV. But when you're actually there for the first time, especially when you're quite young, and I was quite young, you know that on its own sort of blows your mind. Blows your mind, and I was looking out out of the cab at this at the Manhattan skyline, going, "Wow, there it actually is!" And exactly the moment I had the wow moment, um, the guy on the right just said, "Now, Steve, if you need anything while you're in Manhattan, you need any cocaine, you need something to smoke, you need anything at all." Uh, this is my card, and he and he handed me his card, and it was you know Bud whatever it is, uh, Drug Enforcement Agency, New York Police Department, and I'm thinking, I've just stared at the Manhattan skyline at the very for the first time at the very same time, the 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 New York drugs police department drug squad has offered me drugs <laughs> and said that you know if i need anything at all i've only got a call and he'll bring it round to the hotel so they're going to be busting some poor sod on the street <laughs> taking his gear off him you know and, and running straight round to to my place <laughs> to drop it off because any friend of tim's is a friend of theirs um so that was my first experience of 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 Manhattan that that's how I arrived in between two uh New York police department uh, drug enforcement plain clothes police uh who were now my buddies I wonder how many times they'd made that journey with friends of Tim's yeah probably probably quite a few times and probably with some pretty heavy duty celebs because yeah. tim was very well connected and he he you know he, he i mean he'd worked for i think i think he'd done cliff richard the week before he'd done us mm. um so he was obviously you know a pr- pr- pretty pretty well-known character on the scene at that point mm, trying to imagine what they'd be scoring for cliff if i'm being honest i'm struggling to <laughs> I'm I should imagine anything he wanted, because <laughs> any friend of Tim's is a friend of Tim's. Well, there we have it. <laughs> Maybe if I ever bump into Cliff, I'll ask him the same question. <laughs> ask him about Texas Tim. About Texas Tim. <laughs> which which does sound like something that you'd get on Milkshake at nine o'clock in the morning. It's the kind of thing my son would probably watch. 
<laughs> Tim was very smooth. Yeah, <laughs> slightly darker version Not, of Bob the Builder. Nothing, yeah, nothing was a problem. You know, I, I always think of that Harvey Keitel character yeah. in Pulp Fiction, Pulp Fiction. You know, the, the one who just makes things go away mm. or just fixes things, sorts things out. You know, Tim was one of them. That's a lovely moment in Pulp Fiction. Uh, yeah, where, it is. where he comes in, where they've just <laughs> damn, I've just shot Marv in the face. Yeah, anyway, <laughs> slightly digress. Um, so, one and he, of, <laughs> and he asked about his mother's favourite favourite bedding. Yeah. Doesn't he? I like we my, my wife and I like oak. Does she like oak? And he's panicking because there's blood all over the room. <laughs> it is. And then there's that great line when he goes to the scrapyard to dispose of the body. He's talking to that girl, and, and uh, she says something about character. And he said, "Just because you are a character." doesn't mean you have character uh, i've used that a lot since it's a it's a fantastic film that it really is like nothing i'd seen before when i saw that but oh, me neither. um so one of the things that keeps cropping up um and people have it's been on facebook it's been on the guest book it's been on some of the the, the patron comments is well the two things are ice cream genius keeps cropping up and the h band keeps cropping up and there's a lot of stuff to talk about in both of those things. Um, and I know we've had a bit of a brief chat and uh, realised that actually it's 23 years ago. So memory, <laughs> memories are a little sketchy. Um, yeah, I was saying that, you know, if it was a baby, then by now it would have it would have already been backpacking, come back and got a proper job. Yeah. That's, that's how old it is. Yeah. Probably just about to be laid off. Because obviously, it's, but anyway, <laughs> furloughed. Um, but so we we said we'd try today and talk a little bit about how Ice Cream Genius came about. So not too much about the detail about how it was recorded, or not too much detail about the songs. But actually, I guess the first question is: When did you kind of think you wanted to record a solo album? Did you always want to, or did it just did you wake up one morning thinking, "Oh, I've got this stuff"? When did the opportunity arise? Well, I think, well, while we were at Stanbridge Farm down in Brighton, right in holidays in Eden, I was still in that kind of pre-Marillion state of mind that you could get up in the morning and write a song by a tea time. Um, and it slowly became apparent that, that I joined a band that, that would not entertain that notion on principle. And that in order to write a song, you had to have a good idea, leave it alone for six months, then take it off the shelf like a like a, a bottle of wine, turn it a few times and put it back, um, you know, to move the sediment a bit, and then come back to it maybe in another six months to see how it was doing. <laughs> and uh, I was so unused to having that, to, to being able to be that relaxed about songwriting or having the kind of resources that meant that there really was no hurry. Um, I guess, you know, I'd been used to producing wine that you could you could drink the same day. <laughs> Uh, and Marillion is is more of a, a a wine that needs leaving alone for a few years in the cellar. Um, so I was be I was becoming a little bit frustrated at, at the at the pace of, uh, at, at, with which we were developing ideas at Stanbridge. 
Um, and I was, as I said before, I was frantically trying to finish songs all the time. Well, while they were, while while the rest of the band were looking at me nervously, as if to say, "What's he doing?" You know, it's far too soon. And in the end, they sent me home because it was stressing them out. They told me to go and have a fortnight off. Um, and so I think during all of that, I started to feel like, you know, my my tubes were getting a bit clogged up. Uh, I'd got ideas that were getting stuck in the tube and not being allowed out. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, well, you know, if I ever, if if I get chance, I'll I'll go and make a solo album and get all this stuff out of my system. So that was sitting there um, in the back of my brain somewhere and then um when we made this strange engine a bit later um and you know we left emi and everything the a and r guy there was a guy at at castle communications who was the, the label we ended up doing this strange engine through and there was a guy there called dougie dudgeon and he sat me down one day in the office and just said, "What you know, would you like to do a solo record? Because I could offer you a deal. Um, it might have come through John Arneson, the manager, to be honest. It might not have been face-to-face. But, but I became aware of the fact that, that they would be up for making a, a solo album. Um, you know, and all the usual bullshit that I, that I could be a big star in my own right, and all of this, and um, and so that took a, quite a few turns. Um, but I think as time went by, I think they slowly realised that I wasn't very malleable, in the sense that they couldn't really package me um, as a you know as a product that they could sell to women of a certain age <laughs> um, because I, I was probably just, I was a bit too much of a renegade and, and too too much of a creative and I wasn't going to give them what they needed to do that. Um, and so they started, I think they started to get the, their head around the fact that I was going to make, you know, a, a What's the word? Well, more of a work of art yeah. than a, something you could you could market and sell in a straightforward way. Um, and so I looked around for a, I, I was going to need a producer, obviously, um, to, to to make this record. And I didn't really know any producers, and you, you know, I knew. Obviously, I knew about producers, and uh, I was thinking, well, who could I get to do this, and who could I ask? So I phoned up Dave Gregory, because I've known Dave for years, um, and, you know, Dave having been part of XTC, I knew he would know a few people who were creative Mm. and radical. And he suggested... Uh, a guy called Craig Leon. He said, I've been working with this guy, Craig Leon. He's American. And he's worked with a whole load of people, but, he, you know, he, he did a Bob Marley record. And I went, really? Um, and he said, yeah, he's a New Yorker. He's quite an avant-garde New Yorker. Um, so I said, well, you you know, have you got a number? And I phoned him up. Um 
and uh, you know he he came on he came on board with it. We had a couple of meetings, and he was a very deliberate curve that yeah. I was throwing. You know, I, I'm I'm not going to work with anyone that anyone would expect me to work with. Um, you know that I could have worked with, you know, Nick Davis who'd done Seasons End, who's a great producer. Uh, I could have gone back to Chris Neal, you know, made a pop album. Um, but I knew that w- what it was I was trying to express was 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 a bit more peculiar. Um, so I thought let's let's go and let's go and do it with you know this this New York guy and he was quite old he was like a professor um and he was very you know not very eccentric but he was eccentric um and he would say um if he didn't like an idea he'd go it's torture it's torture um and if he liked an idea he'd go i scream genius on that idea and so he was saying this all the way through the record. He was like, oh, it's a torture, it's a torture, it's a torture. Or ice cream genius on that. Um, and th- that's how come in the end, when when we thought, what on earth are we going to call this record? I said, we should call it ice cream genius because that's all you ever say when you like something. So it was Craig that, that unwittingly titled that, that album. Uh, maybe I should have called it torture <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure there's a lot of people who've, who've probably called it that over the years but uh, <laughs> uh so that so so then um when when we started so then i i'd got dave gregory on board i think dave was the first phone call i, I made and I said look I, I, i'm gonna make a solo album will you help you know can you could, do you want to play guitar on it and go, oh, all right, all right, Steve. He's a bit war, Dave Gregory. Oh, Did, oh well. Didn't know. Will it mean? Didn't know he was a word. Getting off the? Will it mean getting off the sofa, Steve? You know, because he hates getting out of his slippers, Dave. Um, but but I persuaded him into it, and uh, he he put me on to Craig, and then I was looking for a rhythm section, and I'd got a real bee in my bonnet about having the Talking Heads rhythm section, having uh, Tina Weymouth and Chris Franz. Um, and in the end, I, I eventually got hold of them. Um, that's another story, because we had a, a monitor man back then called, um, oh, what was he called? Jeffrey Hooper, Welsh Jeffrey Hooper. Oh, he's beautiful. Beautiful sound engineer, um, and uh, he'd he'd been an out front sound man through the eighties, and you name him, and he'd done him. He'd done like he'd mixed the Police and the Clash, and uh, yeah, unbelievable. And he'd mixed the Talking Heads. I think he was actually doing the out front sound on the Stop Making Sense tour. And I said, so I phoned him up. I said, Jeff, you know, have you got a number for Chris and Tina? And so he gave me their number, and I got hold of them. Um, and they were in the middle of another project, and they said, "Well, we can't really come to 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 England, but if you send us if you send us some music, we'll we'll happily record um, in our own studio in New York." So I thought, "Wow, that's fantastic!" And then Craig, um, you, you know, we needed a rhythm section while we were working the songs up, and Craig said, "Well, what about Clem Burke and Chucho Machan?" and 
Craig had been working on something else with, with Clem and Chucho. Now, Clem, obviously, was a drummer from Blondie, and, and, and Chucho, um, I'd met Chucho in Rio de Janeiro uh, on on that tour and uh, on, on that big festival in 1990 that we did because uh, the Eurythmics were on that festival and Clem and Chucho were the Eurythmics rhythm section on that festival and so I'd been talking to Chucho in the bar I think you couldn't really miss Chucho because he was like that he was a real character oh man um, Colombian um, full on South American Charm the birds out the trees, you know, endless, endless stories. Great vibe, you know. He just he just lifted a room when he walked into it. Um, so I really loved the idea of working with him because I, I I knew we'd get a vibe going, and so uh, they they became the rhythm section when we made the record. Um, and I found out. Um, oh, that's tr- this is another thing uh, about ICG that I also quite fancied working with this 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 young up and coming kid called Steve Wilson who'd got this band called Porcupine Tree that uh, that we'd have been hearing about and we'd been hearing their stuff and it it sounded really good it was really well recorded and mixed and I thought I'm going to ask Steve I'm going to ask Steve Wilson if he wants to do it so I got hold of Steve Wilson and. Uh, he just agreed to make a fish album. I said, "What? Oh, right. Uh, mm, better not do that then." Um, so that was my big chance to work with Steve. That that was, you know, blown out of the water really for the wrong reasons. But but just you know, I I didn't feel I could, I could I could. Um, what's the word? Um, can't think of the word, but I, I, di- I didn't think I could I could bring Steve into work, into producing a record straight off the back of having produced a Fish record uh, because of, of of how the fans would react to that. Um, no other reason really, no. um, and it would have been, it would have been nice, and maybe the the, the time may yet come when when I collaborate with Steve because there's a lot of mutual respect there. Um. Anyway, that the 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 Steve Wilson idea, you know, went in the bin after I found out about that, and and Craig Leon came in, and so the the unit that recorded Ice Cream Genius was oh, oh that's what I was trying to get to. I knew that Steve Wilson, of course, had this had the synthesizer player in his band called Richard Barbieri, who was the guy from Japan. Um, and I loved that Tin Drum album when it, in the 80s. I thought it was a work of genius. And, uh, you know, Richard was all over that with his spooky little noises, his spooky little synth noises that I'd never heard anyone else make, and I still haven't. You know, you, you can you can hear Richard even now, and it can't be anyone else on earth. You know, when you hear Stevie Wonder play the harmonica, you yeah. go, well, there's nobody else can do that. Yeah. That's Stevie Wonder. It's not someone pretending. It's not some other guy who can do it. It's Stevie Wonder because nobody else can do it. Yeah. Um, and Richard's like that, you know. When you hear when you hear what Richard does, you know it's him. Mm. You don't need to be told it's him because nobody else does that. No. Um, so 
I've, I, th- I thought to have Dave Gregory on guitar, Richard Barbieri on synthesizers would be a really potent, uh, you know, and again, very different to Marillion, um, mm. but, but, but very brilliant. And so I, that became the core band. It was, it was Richard, Dave, me, and uh, Clem and Chucho. And, and that was it. I don't think I've forgotten anyone. And then we brought in, uh, at one stage, Craig said, have you heard of a percussionist called Louis Jardim? He's Trevor Horn's percussionist. I went, yeah, of course I've heard of Slave to the Rhythm. Oh, my God. Um, so he persuaded uh, Louis to, to come. Louis arrived. He said he'll probably be late. He's usually late. And I think he was four days late, <laughs> um, which, according to Craig, was quite normal. And you shouldn't get upset. <laughs> so he was due in on the Monday at sort of 11 in the morning and I think he showed up on Friday at 7 in the evening um, and which, but but you know as, as soon as he did what he does it, it, you know he's worth the wait I mean he's, he's, he's something else that whole percussion thing when it's done right it's a dark art um, it's a really dark art because I play tambourine and I love shaking things and I do do a lot of the percussion on the Marillion albums, but when you work with somebody who, who you know at Lewis's level, it's it's like a form of magic. It's just unbelievable. He was he would shake a tambourine on a track, uh, and he would go, "Well, where do you want it? Do you want it on the front or the back of the groove?" And I go, "Well, what do you mean?" And he'd go, "Well, this is the front," and he, you you kind of listen, you're right, and he'd go, "And this is the back." And nothing would change except a feeling. Mm. You know, the whole thing, the whole track would lay back. I think, how is that possible? Because it's sound, you know, the, I mean, it's going chitter, 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 just as it was going chitter, 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 chitter before, but the feeling has completely changed. Um, so it, it's a form of wizardry. Mm. And so he came in and, and played shakers and tambourines on it. And in a way, kind of, you needed it because Clem is like a—he's a—he's sort of a punk drummer, really, uh, and he's very—you um, know—he's all about energy and 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 edge, and sometimes, you know, the edge was too much, and then and then Lewis would come in and put a shaker straight through the middle, and it had all—it had all suddenly sound, you know, it's it smooth out all the rough bits. You know, by going straight through the middle of the groove, it, it, a dark art. Mm. Um, I don't know how it's done, but I think you're born with it. And I've, over the years, I've, I've I've run into Lewis again and and worked with him again uh, live with with Trevor Horn. And um, you know, I I sat him down. And I said, "Look, Lewis, how did you? How, what's your journey? How did you get to this place?" And he would he wouldn't really tell me. He just said, "Well, I was just fortunate, man, to work with a lot of great people like yourself, and that's it." I was thinking, "You bugger," because <laughs> I want I want to know, you know, I, it, I want to know where this wizardry comes from, and you know, whether you're born with it or you attain it, or or you you go and you you know you go and live in a cave with some Brazilian guy for ten years, and he teaches you, you know, in a kind of um, karate, karate kid. kid. Kind of. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> wax on, wax off, kind of way. 
<laughs> Mr. Miyagi. But he, would, he wouldn't tell me. Right. But he's amazing. So that was my band. And, well, uh, and we, made, we made a record at the Racket Club. And we also recorded a lot of vocals down at, um, in a shed at the uh, this shed by the river in Cookham next to a studio called Sol Mill, which Jimmy Page used to own, mm-hmm. but not in the studio, Sol Mill, because Chris Rea had bought that. And Chris Rea was in Sol Mill. And we were in this kind of shed next to it. And one day Chris turned up and just sort of went, hello, you all right? How's it going? I went, oh, hello, Chris. Yeah, it's going fine. And he kind of mooched about a bit and left again. He's, uh, so, uh, well, yeah, he popped in. I'm going to stop you there only because uh, there's lots more to tell and um, we we do have a tendency to bang on a little bit. Um, mm. And by that, that I, I'm... I, that was very kind. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> we, uh, we'll jump to a bit of diary, um, and we'll, but we'll come back to this. So we've we've because the other thing I want to touch on is when we do talk about it again, is the fact that it also came in the middle of a very um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? The Marillion at the time were producing an album a year in that period, so it wasn't even as if it was downtime in the Marillion schedule, because over the period of you know TSE and I guess it's dot uh, com and Radiation all came out pretty much year on year. So you'd have been busy anyway with, with the band. So I'm I'm intrigued to know how it all came about because that must have been a fairly intense period for you. But we'll we'll come back to that. We'll probably come back to that next week and pick up the story from where we've left. Um Okay. Diary this week, uh I believe I believe we we're about to, to, to rattle through through Germany and then maybe move on to Stockholm and what have you after that, thinking about the whole Isneden tour. Right. So yes, the, um, the Phillips Haller. Should we have a little bit of diary and then and then come back and and wrap up? Yes. Let's let's do that. We'll do that. We'll do that. In which case, everybody, we'll we'll see you in a little while, fifteen minutes. Or so enjoy the diary, and we'll uh, we'll come back and and talk to you a bit after that. Now, where did I put it? Oh, there it is, over there. I'll go and get it. Sunday, 6th of October, Dusseldorf, Phillips Halle. Got up, or should I say out, at 10. We were in a car park next to the crew bus. Something was missing. Trucks. The loading was supposed to be at 8. The trucks arrived at midday with tales of steep hills and bad traffic. So we hung around at the gig and watched the show being assembled. So that's what they all do, I thought. Took photographs of the show under construction. Time lapse. Went to bed at 3pm. Sound check at 5. Sound check went well. I was somewhat hassled by fans. They seem more insistent here in Germany. Give them an inch, they take a foot. And before you know it, you haven't got a leg to stand on. As Melchett pronounced in Blackadder. The show was going to have to be something special, not to seem a step down from last night. Nonetheless, the audience was fantastic, and perhaps warmer than usual. The band played really well, and the evening was a great success. There was a large record company contingent, so I imagine we did ourselves a lot of good. 
Peter Rieger, our German promoter, was around and seemed pleased, so the gig was probably making him plenty of dosh. After the show, I was told off for eating crew sandwiches. Overnight to Munich. Monday, 7th of October, Munich Circus Krone. We arrived around 10am, checked into a day room at a hotel in town and walked down to the venue. It really is a circus, and although I didn't see any, there are elephants tucked away somewhere, probably in the fridge. The catering crew had set up tables outside as it was a sunny morning, and while I was sitting in the courtyard awaiting breakfast, a perfect white horse, completely unaccompanied, wandered past me into the building. It's a good job I don't take drugs. It was a pinch-yourself moment. Before soundcheck, I had a mooch round the town with Helen, Smick's fiancée, who was still with us, having missed an earlier flight back to Stockholm. We had Irish coffee at a street cafe. Very civilised. I went back to the hotel for an hour's sleep and then back to soundcheck, which was cavernous. Trish said she's made some pockets for my new leather coat. How sweet of her. So I gave it to her so she could sew them in and dug out the Peruvian job from the wardrobe. There were hiccups all round in the live show, but it was nonetheless well up to standard, and from what I heard, no one went home unhappy. Although I have no doubt that the Circus Corona is a great place to see a circus, it's not a great acoustic space for rock music. Enduring memory of the day was the support band playing the brass coat rails in the dressing rooms. Being brass players, they had inserted mouthpieces into the coat rails. They had a room each along the corridor, and it was echoing around like a deranged symphony. After the show, I took revenge for last night's ticking off by replacing all the crew sandwich labels. They have their names on them for after the show. I wrote Steve H on all of them. Went down well. Tuesday, 8th of October. Berlin Tempodrome. Arrived in Berlin around 8.30am and checked into the hotel. Had a bit of a kip and went out for a spot of breakfast in a street cafe. Later on, went to the war memorial in the East German part of the city. This was, of course, a memorial to the Russian war dead. Quite a sight. Like all war memorials, a reminder of the scale of the slaughter, which always seems so pointless looking back. Trust me to forget to take the camera. Came back to the hotel around 2 and went back to bed. Rose at 4.30. Defoned to say that the trucks were stuck behind a car crash on the corridor road and they didn't arrive until early afternoon, so there was chaos at the gig. The tempodrome is a tent. The design is such that there is no headroom at the back of the stage, so we couldn't use drapes and the lighting rig has been dismantled completely and redesigned. Paul Devine didn't even moan. They all just got on with it. I guess they learned to be flexible a long time ago. Fab crew. Soundcheck was tedious. Steve R had backline problems, and the whole thing felt like a pub gig, so it was time to just relax and enjoy the show for what it is. I thought the show went well. The audience seemed older than usual and a little sedate for Berlin. 
The band didn't enjoy it. Steve R had flu, and Mark K ripped his leather trousers on a flight case catch. <laughs> After the show, EMI rep Nada took us to a cocktail bar full of yuppies. I bolted a white Russian and bolted. Wednesday, 9th of October. Berlin, day off. Had a lie-in till lunchtime, then went looking for the Reichstag and the Brandenburg Gate. There's no trace of where the wall used to be. Beneath the gate there are East German street vendors selling Russian paraphernalia. Furry hats, badges, uniforms, army surplus watches, binoculars, babushka dolls, and the inevitable brightly spray-canned pieces of concrete, purporting to be fragments of the Berlin Wall. Who knows, but I doubt it. Walked down the long street, which used to be divided, to the magnificent Berliner Dom, domed church, and then back for coffee at the Opera Café. Very splendid, and German urbane, all exotic cakes and chocolates. Reminded me of Vienna. Made my way back to the hotel with Babushka in pocket for Fifi. Showered up and went out with the record company to a medieval German restaurant. Horns of mead and seven courses of fat. Tuesday, 10th of October, Hamburg, CCH3. Left the Berlin Hotel at 12 and rattled off to Hamburg in the bus, arriving around 4. Made our way up through the maze of corridors at the CCH Centre, and finally found catering which was attended and staffed by a motley array of zombies. The crew had had a night off in Hamburg. Sound check was stressful. We had decided to turn the monitors down after Berlin, so everything had to be retweaked. After the sound check, there was a photograph behind the mixing desk, and I did one of those interviews best forgotten. Had half an hour relaxing on the bus. The hall was different to last time, no seats and more atmosphere. The show was well received, although the band was a bit unsettled by the quiet monitors. Friday 11th of October, Copenhagen Saga. Arrived at the Sheraton around 9, checked in and went to bed till 12. Went for a stroll which in the end turned out to be a four-hour walk around the town. Breakfasted at the Hard Rock Cafe and noticed a poster on the wall for our concert. It was a pleasant afternoon and I walked through the old town and down to the waterfront bought a pair of gloves and wrote postcards in a street cafe. Stopped to listen to a really good rhythm and blues band busking on the street. Danish rhythm and blues. Who'd have thunk it? Arrived back at the hotel late for soundcheck and made my own way to the saga. Soundcheck was fun. The monitors were back loud again. Had a bit of luck during the show. I fell off the stage, not realising there was no extension at the wings during garden party. One minute I was on the stage, the next I was flat on my back on the floor looking up. Fortunately, I wasn't even bruised. Kept singing, climbed back up and threw myself off the other side of stage for symmetry. It was a good night and afterwards Thomas from the record company was foaming at the mouth with enthusiasm. Says he'll get us on a couple of festivals next year. He didn't. After the show, Pete and I went to a hotel round the corner to shower. Street life was very seedy. P. 
people shooting up outside video shops advertising rape and child porn. Bloody hell. Saturday, 12th of October. Stockholm Palladium. Arrived at 8 and checked into the hotel. Went for a walk with John A. round the old town. Had coffee in a little cafe and nearly bought a loud shirt for Fifi. John went back to the hotel and I carried on window shopping. In NK, the department store, I fell in love with a glass bowl. It was blue and shot with dreamlike Mark Chagallish figures floating in the air. A bit out of my price range, though, at 4,000 quid. Nearly bought a Swedish Monopoly, but the shop assistant wouldn't take my credit card without ID. Bumped into Ulrika, Jenny, Anna and Helen's mum in the street. They'd driven here from Gothenburg for the show. Went back to the hotel for 140 winks. Later, taken down to the show by Mike, the promoter, who wasn't even slightly Swedish, but very EastEnders. All right, my son. Sound check went well. Didn't go back to the hotel as we had to hang around for photographs. Catering did chips. There was a shop opposite the gig with illuminated globes. How would you get one home? The show went really well. Audience was fantastic. After the show, we did a runner straight back to the hotel, showered up, then the record label took us to a nightclub called Café Riche, which was the kind of place where smooth, rich, middle-aged folk go to get picked up. Not really comfortable here, so I legged it. To a club called The Frog, which was just closing, and then to the Café Opera, till they threw us out at three o'clock. Walked back through the old town, which was deserted and ghostly. Felt like an old scene from a Bergman movie. Ingmar, not Ingrid. Otherworldly and quite magical. Someone was delivering newspapers to the houses on Stortorget. Must have been getting late. Sunday, 13th of October. Stockholm, Ludwigsburg. Day off. Spent all day and night on a bus. And we're back. And that was another section from the diary. Um, another bit of the Holidays in Eden tour. Um, and I've got a few questions actually on the back of uh, on the on the back of those little extracts. Um, I suppose the Ooh. serious one. I'll start with the serious one because if I ask yeah. the ones that are slightly less serious, we might never we might never get we'll back. Never get get past them. No, no, no. Um, monitors. So you had mm. a thing with the monitors where the monitors were went quiet and then came back loud and were tweaked and it, and you lost a whole sound check to monitors being tweaked. And um, when you when you're on the road. And you're ten, twelve, fifteen shows in. How much? Um, how much does something like that affect a performance? How, can it? Can it? You know, really not screw up shows, but does it? Does it have the kind of effect you said it did in the diaries? Absolutely, because um, back then the huge difference was that there were no in-ear systems. Mm-hmm. It was it was loudspeakers. It was what they called wedge monitors, which are these speakers that that was set at 45 degrees and, you know, aimed under your chin. Um, And they had to be so loud 
so you could hear yourself well enough to pitch over the natural noise of the drum kit, mm. which was usually behind you somewhere not very far away. In fact, if you're playing clubs, it's much worse because then the kit's even closer to you. But um, the problem with turning these things up loud uh, is is that they then feed they feed back from the the mic and they start to howl. So you needed uh, back in those days you needed a monitor man who was versed in the dark arts of of making making your your voice very loud uh, without it feeding back down the microphone and of course when it, whenever it feeds back and howls at a certain frequency you then notch that out on the graphic equalizer to get rid of what's ringing. But then, of course, as, the, as, the, as you keep turning the level up, you get to a point where basically you can't control. There's nothing you can do with any amount of equipment. Um, provided you're on a big stage, it was all fine because, uh, you know, when the further away the drums were from me, the, the easier my gig was and the, the more manageable and a better sound I'd have. The only other option you've then got as a singer is to sing so loud that you can hear yourself. But that just means you're constantly screaming your head off, which which means that there's no light and shade. There's no no possibility of of light and shade or soul in a performance. Uh, and it also means that three shows in, you're as hoarse as a bat. And it's, you know, so then you, I used to, the first thing that I lose is, is falsetto. Um, so when I'm, when I'm, when I'm nudging through into falsetto for high notes, it just goes, ah! and it's, it, it's not there. It's not there for having. So that ruins, that ruins my gig because I, I'm a, I'm a perfectionist, you know, and and w w when I get up on stage, um, you know, I I want I want to give the ultimate vocal performance. Quite apart from you know the overall performance of of what I do and the energy and everything else, I'm I'm looking every night for it to be the best thing I've ever done, um, because that's. That's how I am. I'm not someone who goes through the motions. Never could. Never will. You know. I mean, I'd I'd, I'd hang myself before I'd go through the motions, because that's not not what I'm. I'm not on this earth to go through the motions. No. I'm on this earth to try and create something wonderful. Uh, you know. And, and if I never have and I've failed, it wasn't for the one to try it. Um, and so. When you're prevented from doing that, um, and to come to, to come back to your question as well, if the monitor sound changes um, mid-performance, then whatever it is you're thinking about, you cease to think about, and you think, "What just happened then? Mm. Why did that happen? What what happened? Why can't I hear that now?" Mm. And if you're in the middle of a song which is a really important song and you're singing a lyric which is which you know to be true and you're and you're singing that lyric thinking what just happened then then you're not I'm not doing my job my job isn't to be a singer my job is to impart a truth mm. to people um I've always seen it that way I mean, it'll help if it's in tune while I'm imparting it, you know. But my my job isn't to 
sing a song. It's to visit the place that I, that I was in, where the words came from in the first place, and to and to be back in that place, so that I can tell that truth to the people in that moment. That's that's what I'm all about, and so anything that happens at all that that pulls me out of that and of course there are a million million things that can pull you out of it if you're in a room full of people you might just go oh see so and so's in you know that's an interesting frock or whatever you know you those things enter your consciousness you can't stop them and then you've got to go hang on a minute sort yourself out you're singing a song here you know you're not thinking about somebody's frock or who turned up or, you know, why someone's hanging over the balcony or, what, or whatever, you know, uh, where they got that pint from. Um, you, you've, got to, you've got to be in the song. And so then I get angry with myself for allowing myself to think about something else. And then I get really angry with myself for being angry with myself because that's the very last thing I need to do. Uh, because as soon as you you lose your shit, even internally, then you totally, you know, you're you're out of the gig for a period of, of minutes, you know, possibly ten minutes, uh, while you fume to yourself or become outraged about something that you're not happy with, and that's that's so wrong, but it, it's it's natural, but it happens. So then you get into this, your own little feedback loop of being angry with yourself for being angry and then being angry with yourself for being angry with yourself for being angry and, and, and on it goes. And you've got to find a way out of that loop and back into doing what you're supposed to be bloody doing. Um, also, it's a shame to pick on him, but it's... it's it's difficult not to pick on him, you know. Over the years, our our keyboard rig has been prone to failure, <laughs> um, and but you know, in the same way, if 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 you're singing and suddenly half of the music vanishes from under you, yeah. what can you do? Yeah. You know, then then you've got the same dilemma. Well, what the fuck happened there? But you've also got the, you know, feeling pissed off because you were in a zone and you've just had that taken away and you're trying to do something beautiful and true and you're being you know and it was going really well and now it's all now it's gone mm. um you know and i've learned over the years that the fans don't really mind they almost prefer something to go wrong so they can go home going, oh, I was at that gig where that happened. There was the big power cut or the keyboard rig burst into flames or or whatever, you know, or, you know, Rothers Buster Stranger and the Easter solo. And even though it's my favourite solo, I'm glad he bust a string because that, you know, that makes it different, mm, doesn't it? Makes it unique. Uh, yeah. and, uh, and I've learned that over the years and so there's no point becoming upset and desolate over those little things but they do stop me doing what what you do i feel i'm i'm there to do right right in which case i totally appreciate why something like a monitor 
sound change would 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 throw you. But I'll steer you away from that. I'll steer you away from that. Yeah. Um, before you get into good monitor men are rarer than rocking horse shit. They really are. And if you if you've got a good one, and we have got Nick Todd, he's he's the best we we've ever had. And uh, you know, I would carry him around on a cushion if he asked me to. Mm. Right. Well, I'm, don't tell him. No, no. He probably doesn't. He probably doesn't listen. It's probably fine. So let's finish. Let's finish on something slightly lighter from the same extracts. Sandwiches. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, when we when we were on tour back then, I think it still happens now. At, at the end of the night, and it's it, it, at the end of the night because the crew quite often don't have time to eat properly during the day they're so busy um at the very end of the night when usually about half past two in the morning when the, when the when the last of the crew fall onto the tour bus um there was a a a, a big a big box of of sandwiches and our our merch guy this we had a merchandising guy called cod who used to sell the t-shirts and i don't know why he was called cod he didn't smell of cod, um, but perhaps he once did. Uh, but he got this name Cod, and um, he he used he was a bit he was a bit of an East End lad. He was a bit fro he was a bit fway. But but uh, you know the he he decided off his own bat that once he'd finished putting the merch away each night, he'd go to catering and he'd make sandwiches for all the crew. So he used to go and make what they called the loadout sandwiches, so the sandwiches that you'd eat after the loadout. Um, I would always end up on the on the bus way before anybody else, being you know exhausted, and I'd usually be in bed before the first member of the crew even got on the bus. But I'd be first on the bus, as a rule, and there'd be this great massive pile of sandwiches, and and they, each one would be wrapped in cling film with a little sticky label with the name of the crew, because each each member of the crew had their favourite sandwich. So Cod used to make a sandwich for them and write their name on, and uh, he'd have a sandwich, he'd have a mystery sandwich as well that that he would make, and he, he it had a it had a name. I've been trying to think of the name, but it had a name like the Riddler. And you go, Ooh, I wonder what's in the Riddler tonight. You know, it'd probably be anchovies and brown sauce or something. Something or anchovies and marmalade. Something <laughs> despicable. Uh, so if you were feeling particularly hungry or 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 reckless, uh, you'd go for the Riddler just to find out what was in there. Um, and I did. I did occasionally. Um, I, I was known to sometimes swap all the labels around so that um, so that nobody got the sandwich they wanted just just out of sheer immature devilment mm. not the kind of thing I'd do these days I'm far too sensible eight episodes in and having having listened to you I think you would absolutely still do that today um, I'd do something worse <laughs> and finally playing the coat rails how do you play a coat rail? I'd, I'd replace them all with the Riddler. That's what I'd do. <laughs> Everyone would get the Riddler. Um, playing the coat rails. Yeah, that was... A th- I can't remember what that opening act was called. It's probably it's probably in there. Um, but they, they had a brass section. 
Well, they certainly had a trumpeter or something, and and, uh, and this guy discovered that the uh, the mouthpiece from his trumpet would fit fit perfectly inside the coat rail in, in the in the dressing room, and so uh, he'd stuck the mouthpiece in, and he was playing. <laughs> There was all this noise coming coming from the other room, the likes of which I'd never quite heard. It was it was well, it sounded exactly as you'd imagine, mm. a cross between a trumpet and uh, and a coat rail. You know that sort of steely, long steely tubular, zingy kind of sound. Um, yeah, that was that. That was there. I love that. What? Was that the same gig? Was that the same gig when the white horse went by? No, I can't no. Remember. That was the circus crown. Yeah, it? no, it wasn't. No, it's was the. I was quite. I was just quite amused by playing a coat rail. I thought that was quite nice. Yeah, um, yeah. Cre- creative artists. Funnily enough, as well, there's a slight tie-in because um, to something that else has happened this a week. Tyrak. Uh, no, not Tyrak. Uh, <laughs> oh, you've got to be of a certain age to remember Tyrak. That's an, that's another story. Can I tell you that story? When, when I was in the Europeans, I got back from. I got back from Amsterdam one one day and into um, into arrivals in Gatwick, and you know through customs, through everything, and out, and I'm I'm back out and I'm on my way across the arrivals hall, um, and these two guys came up to me and they were cops, and they took me round the back of Tyrek and uh, and searched me. Even though I'd come through customs and uh, and asked me all these questions, where have you just come from? So, well, you know, I'm in a band. I've just come from Amsterdam. What have you got in the bag? I said, What do you mean? What have I got in the bag? And they went through all my bags and they went through my toilet bag and they put their fingers in my hair gel and 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 they're saying, uh, do, you, do you ever smoke any any marijuana? I went, No. I said, Do you expect us to believe that? I said, well, I've never smoked in my life, so yeah, I do expect you to believe that. He said, well, we all like a joint now and again, though, don't we? They're saying, you know, waiting for me to go, well, yeah, we do, don't we? Um, weirdest thing, yeah. weirdest thing. So whenever anybody mentions Tyrak, even though it wasn't me just then, uh, I, I, I think I think of the, the cops right. taking me around the back in Gatwick. Right. Didn't happen to mention that you eat marijuana then. Kept kept that to yourself. I, I did. I didn't mention no, it right. on that occasion. <laughs> probably, probably best. And I did. I did. I did bear. I always used to bear in mind that having worn a lot of heavy black eyeliner at the shows that, that I never quite got rid of properly. I did used to look like an alcoholic housewife a lot of the time, which made me a natural target for. Uh, I once got. I once got followed down the street in Brixton High Street. I'm walking down Brixton High Street on a Saturday afternoon. In this granny coat that I used to have, and it didn't have um, didn't have any buttons. There was no way of holding it together, so I used to put my hands in my pockets and cross my arms over. That was the only way to keep the thing shut. Um, so I'm walking down the street, and after a while, I think I'm being followed. You know, it's this funny, spooky, tingly feeling, and and I was being followed by two policemen. What a policewoman and a policeman, and they're, wa- they're walking along behind me. So then I start doing the whole, you know, I'll pause for a minute and see if they pause, and, and I'll, then I'll walk a bit and see if they were. And they were doing all of that, and I thought, oh shit, they are following me. Um, and they eventually caught up with me. And said, "Excuse me, you're acting very suspiciously." I said, "Well, yeah, you're following me." <laughs> <laughs> so they said, "This honestly, they said, have you have you got a gun in that coat?" 
So, you know, you're not, you're not going to go, no, I'm just pleased <laughs> to see you, are you? You know, that's the, that just goes boom, doesn't it? Right between the eyes and you, and you breathe in to say it and you think that's not going to be a good idea. So, you know, after pausing to, to get rid of all the smart-ass comments that, that they deserved, frankly. Um, you know, the other obvious one is, if you thought I'd got a gun under this coat, you wouldn't be stood there asking me. Because I'd shoot you, wouldn't I? You know, so I didn't say that no. either. No. So I just go, no. I haven't got a gun under this coat. You know. And they, they took my wallet off me and the driving licence and doing all that and radioing back to the station to find out if I was kosher. Right in the middle of Brixton High Street, on a Saturday afternoon, the bus is going by and Marks and Spencers, people everywhere. And I'm standing in the street being questioned by the law. So so I can, I can sympathise with, you know, members of our black community who tend to be targets. Mm. Um, and have to have to cope with that, you know, several days a week, every week. It, it, it's it's so embarrassing. Anyway, back to um, where were we? <laughs> I don't know. I've got completely lost. All I, all I now know is you were down going down Brixton High Street in a coat in a coat with no buttons, and you were stopped by the police. You can turn you can coat. turn that anywhere you like, can't you? Yeah, really. Well, that was that was the alcoholic housewife I make. It used to bring a lot of that upon yeah. me. Yeah, other alcoholics are available. Um, but, but, <laughs> the irony is, I'm much more of an alcoholic now. Yeah. I'll never get stopped ever. Yes, yes. Well, you take a bit more effort on how you turn yourself out when you go out in public. <laughs> uh, right, we're we're about done with uh, with this week's uh, with this week's episodes. I desperately tried to get it to not meander, but I failed miserably yet again. <laughs> Um, I'm going to need to go on a course of some description to try and get this this shit into some kind of order. Um, we'll we'll see you next week. Oh, actually, before a couple couple of quick things before we go. One, we talked about Requiem for a Soldier uh, last week. That's uh, that's available now. I put a, a link on the show notes last week with the link to the YouTube um, clip. I'll put another link on this week uh, because I think there's another link for where you can buy it. So that's out and about. So please support that if you can. And also um, and just a little reminder about the British Podcast Awards. I'll put the link on again this week. If you want to vote for the podcast, we would very much appreciate it. Yes, yes. Vote for our podcast. Vote for our podcast. That would be amazing. I haven't been to an awards dinner for, well, days. Yes, yes, nearly a week. Um, (laughs) And and that's it. And the next the next thing you will hear will be this week's Crooncast, uh, as <laughs> as Mr H uh, goes through uh, an indeterminate number of names. Who knows how many it will be this week? I've uh, I've I've put a fiver on twenty four. Um, uh, that he will... was it. Paul Forrester. I said I'd have to wait. I can't. I, remember. I think it might, might have been. been somebody. You said yeah. I, I did fall yeah. about when you said something about it being for shits and giggles, uh, <laughs> and. <laughs> And that did make me because I hear that I hear that word. the first time I hear that is when it, it arrives for the edit. So I drop it in and then I listen to the podcast before it goes out. And believe me, somebody does listen to this this before it goes out. Um, <laughs> yeah. And 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 Qual- I quality control. <laughs> and it made me made me laugh. It made me laugh. Anyway, everybody stay safe. Um, Do stay and, safe. And we'll speak to you again uh, next week. And enjoy the Crooncast. And bye from. And if you're driving a, if you're driving home tonight, drive fucking. Oh, we're in trouble. Right. This week I'm going for major courts. 
Cause I was getting fed up of all those jazz chords I played the other weeks But I might still go If I get fed up No I won't I've got my shirt Thank you again, Paul Forrester. And thank you, Tamara James, Andrew Sinclair, and Helen Stubbs, Steve Truman, Astrid Durant, and Paul Lesinski. Slightly minor, not that Dave's necessarily sad. I've got somebody called Nevin. I'm gonna find out where Nevin's from. Damn, I've got an address. Possibly Welsh. Ben Criddle, Mami Nagotchi. Ben Criddle Mammy Nokuchi Jules Owens And Charles Whitney Not forgetting Sue Yates And Jeff Martin Mike Barton Well done for getting better, Mike Barton James Greenwood And Paul Rose Who prefers to be called Mr. Biffo, naturally Alison Burke and Dave Morris Pat Mrizek Mrizek, Mrizek, tricky for an Englishman. Carl Bragg, who isn't necessarily sad. I can make him happy. Jesse Powell. How many said? Probably enough. See you soon, purple inmates. Go easy.
Thanks for listening to the Corona Diaries. It featured Steve Hogarth with the insights and me, Ant Short, with the questions. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider subscribing and maybe leaving a review as this will help others find it. You could even share with other like-minded souls, should the mood take you. This has been an A Short Stories production.